the more desperate Putin becomes, the more likely it is that he could resort to utilizing a nuclear weapon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this very special edition of True Conversations podcast, where we explore the truth through conversations with the most brilliant minds. Today, I am joined by no other than Paul Post, Professor Post. He is a military historian and political science professor at the University of Chicago. So, Professor Post, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm honored to have you here. And, you know, I reached out last week because for a second, I believe the world was about to change drastically or there was a glitch in the matrix. Russia happened, the whole mutiny happened or whatever happened. We just, there's a lot of questions unfolding around that particular topic. And so I reached out to you because you're an expert in this field and you were gracious enough to, you know, shed a light real time about what was happening. So that was really enlightening for me. And I thought that our listeners as well would be really helped with your insights and to try to uncover what happened, what could happen and, you know, your perspective on this issue. So I appreciate you joining me. Professor Post, what happened last week, June 23rd? It's we all felt that that day it was going to be a whole change in the political sphere, in the global sphere. Everyone was talking about nuclear war. Everyone was talking about Vladimir Putin being removed from office. So take me through your live insights. You know, it's right that day. What happened in your mind? And we, we can uncover that as we go. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to approach this because I, just like everybody else, was having very much a moment of what is going on. Things are unfolding in real time. I mean, in many ways, it, it, it illustrated the value of like social media because you could actually get the real time updates and see and information's coming in. You could try to follow. Of course, you're trying to figure out like, well, what's happening, what's not. Even like very credible sources, folks are not sure exactly what's unfolding. But I think we now have a, a bit of a sense of what was happening. And now, having said that, everything we're talking about is subject to change, right? Because we're still trying to get a sense of what were the motivations of everybody involved and exactly what was it that ended what we were witnessing. We're still getting a sense for that. But we can at least take a step back and kind of walk through what exactly happened. So, of course, you know, last Friday into Saturday, we're hearing about, about this rebellion, mutiny, insurrection. It's really hard to even say what word we should be using to describe it. But in a nutshell, what occurred was the Wagner Group, this organization that people refer to as a private military uh, corporation, PMC, but they're not in the same sense, they're not a PMC in the same sense as we would think about some of them like a Blackwater back in the day. Of course, that was the PMC that was infamous for the Abu Ghraib back in 2007, 2008. They don't operate in that way. And they're really what they are is they are a mechanism by which the Russian government is able to engage in some unsavory uh, operations both in Ukraine and elsewhere, and do so in a way that allows them to kind of be at arm's length, to have some plausible deniability about their involvement. So this Wagner group came into existence in 2014 following Russia's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. And of course, that was also done in a manner that was kind of, you know, they used what they called the little green men, which was Russian soldiers, but didn't have their patches on, didn't have their insignia. So it was like, Unclear who exactly was carrying this out, but this Wagner group was created in 2014, and the main purpose of it was to help start carrying out a lot of the insurgency that was occurring in eastern Ukraine. So not even so much the Crimean Peninsula, but in the eastern provinces of Ukraine, of course, there's been this ongoing civil war, separatist movement, fighting that's been going on since 2014, 2015, and Again, Russia was able to kind of claim that they weren't directly involved. And the reason why was because a lot of the support that Russia was providing was through this group called the Wagner Group. Mm. And so that's a lot of what this organization was about. And ever since they, well, I should say 
they got started in Ukraine and then they started expanding their operations, franchising, if you will, into Syria, into various countries in Africa. And again, the purpose is to allow Russia to have some military involvement in in these locations, but kind of deny direct military participation. So that was kind of the purpose of the Wagner. But ever since the invasion, the full invasion of Ukraine last February, the Wagner Group has kind of pivoted to becoming more involved in more explicitly directly involved in major military operations by the Russian government and have been working more closely in cooperation with the Russian military. They've been taking on a major role in some of the military operations, most notably the Battle of Bakhmut that, of course, had been taking place over the past several months in this eastern city that kind of became a focal point of the fighting that's been taking place um, for the past half year. And this battle was a very pitched battle, a lot of casualties on both sides. There was even questions about why is Ukraine even trying to hold on to this city? And of course, Russia's trying to tank this city. Eventually, Russia does take this city, but it's taken in a way that's kind of referred to as a Pyrrhic victory. It was like, yes, they achieved it, but at what cost? And that really wrapped up in May. The reason why that matters, though, is because, as I was just indicating, the Wagner Group, they played a leading role in that battle. And then they actually took on most of the casualties in that battle. Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 20,000 men are estimated to have been killed during that battle. Wow. And that's that's real important for a couple reasons. First reason is it illustrates kind of the shift in strategy that Russia's been taking during this war. Russia has not been, the war in a nutshell has not been going as planned. Uh, you know, it's referred to as this special military operation. The expectation is it would be rather short. It hasn't gone that way. They've run into personnel problems. They need more manpower, to be frank. And the way that they were able to start acquiring that was both through a major military mobilization that occurred in the fall, but also by organizations like the Wagner Group recruiting and where the Wagner Group's been recruiting from prisons. And they've been bringing in, you know, the, the, the Russian government's been willing to allow pardons to various individuals in Russian prisons as long as they then join this group and engage in the fighting. And so what you have is you have these prisoners who are signing up, joining the Wagner group, and then they were going to Bakhmut to engage in this fight. And that is a, that's one key thing about why this battle is important, is it really illustrates kind of the Russian overall military strategy. But the other reason why it's important is following this battle, this did two things for the Wagner group. First of all, the Wagner Group, and in particular, their leader, Prigozhin, who everybody has by now talked about has a, a sense of who this person is, he was very unhappy with how that fight He felt that the Russian Ministry of Defense was undersupplying his troops, and he was very vocal about needing more ammunition. Despite all that, they did achieve this Pyrrhic victory. And so that also put the Wagner group in a position of having a bit of leverage, of being able to say, look, you kind of need us. So they're not happy with how the war is being conducted, and they now have a position where they feel like they have some leverage. That put, I think, the Ministry of Defense in a bit of an uncomfortable situation. And in particular, you have the Minister of Defense, Shoigu, he, in early June, issued an order to bring these private military organizations, again, they're not PMCs in the same way, but organizations like Wagner Group, he wanted to kind of end this arms length relationship and formally bring them under the control of the Ministry of Defense. Basically, force these people who are working for the Wagner Group to now sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense. And the reason why is because they're a bit of a concern about how they were conducting they're fighting, but also as a way to kind of take away this leverage that these groups now felt like they had. And of course, the Wagner group, they don't want that. They don't want to be brought under the Ministry of Defense. That dispute was taking place throughout June, even weeks before that, and it came to a head last weekend. That's what ultimately happened, was that you had this dispute about how things should be organized, who should be calling the shots, who should have control. 
And kind of inexplicably, we're still trying to get a sense of why. Bergosian thought that the best bargaining tactic that he could use in this dispute was not to just tell his troops not to fight, not to voice his displeasure, but to actually turn his troops and march them towards Moscow. And that was that was what happened, was that this dispute between the Ministry of Defense and the Wagner Group that was brought to a head in light of the Battle of Bakhmut led to what we saw last weekend, where Pergosian took this extreme measure of not just voicing displeasure, not just refusing to fight, but actually saying, no, we're going to turn our forces towards Moscow. Now, this has been the big thing that surprised everybody because, you know, kind of as the movie, the famous line from the movie, Anchorman, that escalated quickly. <laughs> I, I mean, that just, it just escalated so quickly. People were like, what, what is he thinking? What, what, is, what is he hoping to achieve? And what was clear was that I don't think he knew what he wanted to achieve. You know, the, the analogy I've used is kind of as people talk about when like a dog is chasing a car and people are always like, well, what's going to happen when the dog catches the car, right? I mean, it's not going to know what to do with it. I think that's actually what happened here was that Prigozhin made this decision, perhaps irrational. Maybe he was just totally angry, angry at his boss, angry at the Ministry of Defense, angry. And he made this decision to march on Moscow. And then about eight hours into that, 10 hours into that, he had a moment of clarity of, wait, what am I doing? This doesn't make any sense. We, we, and then they stopped, right? And then they ended up, they stopped. They stopped about 200 kilometers from Moscow. And then that led to the deal where apparently both he decided, no, I wasn't trying to overthrow Putin. And I was just trying to make a point. It was a protest. He literally called it a protest. But at the same time, Putin himself also was like, well, they're traitors, but we're not going to do anything about it. We're going to allow Prigozhin to go to Belarus. Um, I'm going to encourage the people who participated in this, though I'm upset that you participated, you have the opportunity to actually sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense. And then everything was kind of forgiven. So that's just, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of detail there, but that kind of gives you the overview of both what is the Wagner Group and what were they doing and how that then set the conditions for what we witnessed this past weekend. But at the end of the day, what we witnessed this past weekend was really, for lack of a better phrase, a bargaining tactic by the Wagner group. But I think one that was so extreme that they even realized they had to back down from it. Professor Post, wow. Thank you. Thank you for, for those insights. You know, but it's at face value while everything was happening. The first impression for me personally was, is this a military coup against Putin? Is, is Are they trying to overthrow him? And, you know, you mentioned that perhaps this was an irrational decision by, I'm going to botch his name, Prigozhin? Prigozhin? Prigozhin, perfect. Yeah. Okay, perfect. But because I didn't even know Prigozhin before this, and for what I understand, you know, the Western perspective, I, I would love to also, this is another question, but from the Western perspective, from our perspective in this side of the equation of this side of the globe was that everyone was really rallying around Putin in this in his war against Ukraine and in his expansion, you know, towards other territories or whatever he wanted to do. His political power was very placed in check. Everyone was with him. And so Prigozhin comes to the equation and it seems that there's a whole different story, a whole different thing that really I don't I've never read about this in neither in the coverage of, you know, the war of Ukraine, there wasn't really this other side that perhaps there's someone else that wants the power. So was the outcome, the ultimate outcome for you, an unknown, unknown, was it a big, a big surprise that everything just halted like the way it did with Belarus, just negotiating a, a, a peace deal between them? And then Prigozhin saying, we don't want to have any Russian bloodshed. We don't want to, you know, kill any one of our allies, or our people. Was that a surprise for you? And what were all other outcomes that you would seem deem possible that would have happened? You know, because this really escalated quickly and it ended as quickly. So I think it's surprising. The, the outcome was surprising in the sense that Russian society is a society where um, if you make the wrong expression regarding, say, LBGTQ um, 
activism, you could be sent to prison, right? I mean, this is a society that is not an open society. And so when you do something like that, you can be sent to prison. And yet here's somebody who, wow, committed a mutiny. And he's like, well, we're going to forget. Right. We're just, we're not, you know, and I mean, that's the many thing that's surprising. It wasn't so much surprising that he decided to stop. I do think he had this moment of clarity. I think the thing that's been surprising to people is that Putin was also like, oh yeah, okay. You know, yes, I know I said you were a traitor and yes, you did a mutiny, but you know what? It, it's okay. I'm going to go ahead and let this go. And again, this is not a society that is like the standard in terms of punishment. You can go to prison much less than trying to commit a mutiny, and yet that's not what happened. Now, big caveat is we still don't ultimately know what's going to happen to Prigozhin, right? I mean, he's currently in a hotel where um, there's no windows, right? And and the reason why is because there's concerns about the fact that Putin does have this track record of eliminating people who are, um, you know, who create issues for him. Right? And there's still that possibility. So even though right now it looks like Putin is just letting this go and just forgiving this, there's still the possibility that he could actually, you know, take a measure like having him executed. That could still happen. And that's why, you know, it's always tricky to talk about these things as they're unfolding in real time. But having said that, um, I think what's on the one hand, it's Putin's reaction is unsu- is, is surprising given what happened and given, you know, kind of the the way that people could be sent to prison in Russia. But on the other hand, it actually makes a lot of sense what Putin did in terms of deciding, you know what, I'm not going to prosecute. I'm not going to have criminal charges put against the Wagner group. And the reason why is very practical. He needs them. He needs this personnel. He maybe doesn't want, I think, you know, as we're getting more and more information, it seems clear that they do want to try to eliminate the Wagner Group as an organization that still seems to be in play. And it does seem like Prigozhin is I'm blind. But in Putin's own address, when he talked about what happened, I think this was his Monday address or Tuesday address, he talked about how, you know, for those who participated in this mutiny, and I think he used he used the phrase mutiny. Um, he said, "You have three options: you can go home, you can go to Belarus, or you can sign a contract and join the Russian military." And he even said, "I hope that." He basically said, "I hope you do the, the third, right?" He's like, "I hope that you become warriors for Russia," because I think what that points to is that he has a recognition because of the things we talked about with the Battle of Bakhmut. He has a recognition that he can't afford to throw all these people in prison. He can't afford to take to send them back to prison. Remember, because a lot of them came from prison, right? He's like, he can't afford to do that because he needs this personnel. And you know, Russia is in a situation where they need these personnel. So I think that that helps explain a little bit about why Putin was willing to just say, you know what, I know that this is like, you were committing a mutiny, but we're going to just let this go, right? And I think it's because he's in this situation where he actually needs their help. And all of a sudden, the indestructible Putin on my eyes was vulnerable. That was that was the most surprising thing from from my end of the of you know of perceiving what was happening. That it just felt like Putin may fall, and the ripple effects of that fall we don't really know. And a lot of people started describing Prigozhin as someone worse than Putin, someone even more radical. And of course, evidence shows that he can do impulsive things. So we don't really know what would have happened there. Professor Post, just one brief parenthesis for me and also for our listeners. What's the difference between an insurrection, a coup, and a mutiny? That's that's great. That That is like actually a point of debate. Um... So I think that you basically have two ways you could, you have three possible um, phenomena that, or three words that you could use to describe what happened. And then the question is, which of these words is the better descriptor? And they are coup, insurrection, or mutiny. So coup and insurrection are on the same side of the, of the, the ledger, which they are about kind of removing the leader from office, right? So in the in terms of a coup, 
Tours are usually done on the inside. It's an inside job. It'll be part of the political leadership, um, the elites who will try to remove the person from office, right? And that's why people even said this doesn't really fit too, because Prigozhin is not part of the elites. And in fact, if anything, he's opposing the elites. So it wouldn't be considered a coup in that sense. Now, if Shoigu, the minister of defense, had led some sort of attempt to move Putin out of office, that would be a coup. Right. Mm-hmm. That would be a coup. So instead, given that he was like taking his private military group and trying to overthrow, or at least that if, if he was trying to use the Wagner group to overthrow Putin, that would have put it into the level of rebellion or insurrection, where it's a group that's not part of the elite, but maybe a wider group that's maybe even trying to gather up more of the support of the military and the wider populace to remove somebody from power. That would put it in the category of insurrection, of of rebellion. And then that's on one side of the ledger. Mutiny is on the other side of the ledger. So the mutiny is typically where you're taking an action to get the person to change a policy. And you're threatening to remove that. But basically what it is, is that you're like, we're not happy with how you're doing this. And we expect you to change it. Now, that can result in you being removed from power. But if you think about like even, you know, classic cases of a mutiny against a military leader or gets an officer and so forth, that's usually because the group is unhappy with like a policy that person's pursuing and they want them to change the policy. So they engage in this action in order to get them to change the policy or even undermine their policy or they refuse to carry out the policy, right? So that would be, you know, that you can even have a mutiny where you just simply refuse to do what the leader's telling you to do. So it's not so much that you're trying to get the person out of office. It's more that you want the policy to change. And that's more of where a mutiny would come in. And that's now kind of in line with what this was about, which is why the mutiny is probably the more accurate term to be used here. At the end of the day, though, it's all very odd, right? Because it's like, this is you know, I'd, like I said, it's more if it was like an extreme bargaining tactic, and it's not even clear that it was aimed at Putin per se, or if it was intended to just put some pressure to where Putin would say, move Shoigu, his minister of defense, out of office, right? And so maybe that was kind of the idea. So the mutiny is probably the term that best captures what this is, but even then it may not be fully accurate. Yeah, it's really interesting and thank you thank you for the clarification because again as we in real time everything was unfolding and keeps unfolding new details emerge we're just making sense of what's happening and immunity seems to be the closest to to what happened professor post did all of the military group from wagner march on to moscow was that a was that what happened and did they uh went did they exit their posts in, let's say, their role in Ukraine? What was happening there? And how did did this affect, you know, the positions from Russia against Ukraine? And also Ukraine's perspective on what was happening. Did they take advantage of what was happening? Did they move their positions? Or everything's just as literally, it was literally a glitch in the matrix. Just re- everyone just raised their eyebrows and nothing happened. It's a really great question because there's a lot that we're still trying to figure out with this, Um, including just like how much intelligence was there that this was going to happen even before it, right? There's still debate about did the U.S. actually have intelligence to indicate this was going to happen and then thereby warned Ukraine that this was going to happen or at least gave them a heads up it's going to happen. my overall sense is that at least in the short term, this didn't do much in terms of the battlefield dynamics. And the reason why is because of what we were just talking about earlier. The Battle of Bakhmut was already um, over. And so this the Wagner group was not engaged in like active military fighting at a large scale. And you know, and they they wouldn't have tried to do this if they were, right? They will already kind of in a reserve position or at least in a, you know, for lack of a better word, a recovery position. But there was already, and part of that was because there was already this like debate of a policy change, trying to bring them in and change their status um, vis-a-vis the the Ministry of Defense. So there wasn't anything where they were like 
actively fighting on a large scale and then suddenly they turned and allowed a flight to open up or something like that. There wasn't anything like that um, based on, you know, the information that I have based on kind of what we know about what's currently happening is Ukraine is, of course, engaged in this counteroffensive, right? This is this counteroffensive that started as long as they're exactly the start, but it started in the spring, late spring, and they are now trying to make progress against Russian forces. They've made some progress against Russian forces. There's a lot of um, discussion, especially in Western capitals, about that the counteroffensive is not moving as quickly as it was expected and might be falling short. And there's concerns about that. But the point is, is that Ukraine was already engaged. So it wasn't possible. It wasn't a situation where like Ukrainian forces were in a holding pattern. They see this happen and now they can just jump in and fill that gap and launch an attack. They're already launching a counteroffensive. And you could even think where that might have played a role in what Wagner did. Kind of thinking that, well, gee, Russian forces are already under pressure because of this counteroffensive. Now might be the opportune time to take action because we're most likely to get a concession because Russia is under this pressure. Mm-hmm. But that didn't seem to be a factor either. So I think mostly it was just a lot of confusion. Again, that's, you know, there's, and I mean, again, we, we don't fully know the extent to which there was the intelligence knew that this was going to happen or have these insights into what was going to happen. I mean, it seems it seems like the U.S. government did know, U.S. intelligence sources did know that this was going to take place. And there had already been, I mean, it wasn't unknown that Prigozhin was upset and that Prigozhin could have this capacity, but it still surprised a lot of folks in terms of when he took this action and how he took this action. But in terms of altering the battlefield dynamics in the short term, that didn't seem to be much of a there. That's really interesting because that would be literally the the for for a counteroffensive that would be the perfect sort of storm to do. And it seems that neither like we, we just we're not seeing at least you know in the Twitter sphere or in the global news we're not seeing any statements by Zelensky. I don't remember Zelensky ever being mentioned in even though in, uh, in, uh, while June 23rd 24 was happening I don't remember Zelensky's name being mentioned so that really blew my mind well keep in mind you know there's the old adage never stop your enemy when they're making mistakes uh, right and so I think part of that could be Zelensky being like look they're just if we're just gonna let them like if they're gonna start infighting we're just gonna sit back and let them in right so I think part of that is you know, um, but no, you're right that there, there is definitely kind of like we're just gonna kind of let this play out. We're monitoring the situation. Um, I know that over the weekend, Biden was at Camp David. He's trying to get a sense of what's going on with the situation and so forth. So I think part of it was just confusion and kind of like getting a sense. But I think part of it also was don't stop your enemy when they're making mistakes. That's that's a great point. That's a really great point, Professor Post. Now that everything kind of like the dust settled a bit. We're seeing kind of the pieces of the puzzle just joining together. And now moving forward, what does this say? What does the whole situation say about the Russian government, their position? What does it say about Vladimir Putin's power? And what does it say about the future of the Russia-Ukraine war in a whole? You also mentioned the elitists, uh, the elites in Russia supporting Putin, if I'm not mistaken, it seemed that they didn't back off. Is this still happening? What is your take in all of these variables? So I think the key thing that I've been noticing in terms of the implications of this and where this is taking things. So there were a lot of folks who viewed this as the beginning of the end, right? That it's like, this is clearly going to undermine and I think it is true. This has undermined Putin and his credibility in many ways for reasons that we just talked about. I mean, the, the simple fact that he was willing to just say, ah, oh, you know what? I know it was an insurrection, but we're going to let it go. We're not going to press charges. Um, it does suggest some weakness. Um, and again, as we already talked about, I think weakness predicated on, you know, kind of material interest. He needs these personnel. Um and so what that has led to is it's led people to say this points to the beginning of the end, that Putin, there's these fissures in Russian uh, support, 
There's these fissures in Russian society, military support, even in the elite support. And so that is going to create conditions where this war is going to end. And that's at least what I saw a lot of the initial narrative about. But I think that Putin's weakness and the fact that this is illustrated weakness on the part of Putin actually points in the opposite direction. And the reason why is, and again, to be clear, it's not because I, I think Putin is stronger now than he was last week. I don't think that at all. I do agree that he is weaker, but I think that actually creates a dangerous situation. Because due to him being weaker, it can lead to a situation that we refer to as gambling for resurrection. And what this is, this is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It is you who are willing to take extreme measures in order to ensure that you stay alive. And by alive, that can mean literally alive, but it can also mean your political life. And authoritarian leaders are particularly susceptible to doing this because they can have great fear about their post-leadership life, mm. right? You know, for a lot of leaders, when you leave office, uh, say in a democracy, you go on and write your memoirs and, and start the speaking circuit and all those kind of things. Again, most leaders, not not everybody, but most do this. Um but for authoritarian leaders, this, especially ones who engage in wars, there could be a lot of concern about that if the war goes poorly, you can be held liable for that. And that can result in not just prison, but even execution afterwards. And so that can lead, that can induce a leader to take more extreme measures and to actually hold on. And that can actually lead to the war lengthening as opposed to shortening. You know, a leader who feels pretty strong in their position domestically might say, you know, the lad, we don't need to win this war. I, I would be fine. We could end this war and, you know, to reach a deal. I'm sure, you know, people will criticize me for reaching a deal, but you know what? It's fine. I'm in a steady position. But if it, or I'm in a stable position. But if you're not in a stable position, if you feel, if you feel like you're politically vulnerable, well, and Putin is now more vulnerable. He's even less likely to accept some sort of deal that would end because now he's going, he knows he looks weak. He feels like he has to look even more resolved, even stronger, because he has to take these kind of desperate actions to maintain his political life, which in turn can actually go to his real life. So that is why I think this actually creates conditions for the war to be prolonged. Even though it points to weaknesses within Russia and it points to difficulties in their war effort and it points to kind of this undermining of Putin himself, that actually creates conditions for him to be more likely to continue fighting rather than less likely to continue fighting. And that's why I think this was not the kind of hopeful thing that maybe people were pointing to, or at least the initial reaction that folks had about it. Wow, that's really interesting, Professor. And I'm going to link the, your post and World Politics Review. You just uh, published it today, June 30th. The Wagner mutiny will probably prolong the war in Ukraine where you go in-depth into what you just spoke today, right now. So thank you. You mentioned these extreme tactics or extreme measures an authoritarian leader could do. And now we're talking about Putin, who has the biggest nuclear arsenal in the entire globe and is waging a war, some are saying a proxy war with the U.S. I don't know your perspective on that, if that's a legitimate take, a legitimate perspective on what's happening in Ukraine. But I'm curious, what, what are some of, in your mind, what are some of these extreme measures that are feasible in Putin's eyes? And what are some that concern you and, you know, your whole take on these extreme measures? So I think we're I think it's absolutely correct to focus on the nuclear question, right? Because I think that is the big thing. That's the most extreme measure. Uh, I think what's more practical, or not, I don't want to say practical, though it is practical from Putin's standpoint, but the most likely measure is just continuation of the war, unwillingness to back down, un unwillingness to reach some sort of settlement with Ukraine. I think that is what is the most likely scenario. But we, we absolutely need to talk about 
the possible use of a nuclear weapon. The probability is still low, mm-hmm. and or it's not an and, it's a but. <laughs> it's still low, but two things. Number one, when you're talking about nuclear weapons, you care about low probabilities, right? Because if it happens, it's devastating. And number two, it's low, but I do think it's rising. And I think it's been rising throughout the war, that the more desperate Putin becomes, the more likely it is that he could resort to utilizing a nuclear weapon. Now, I don't think he would use what we would call a strategic nuclear weapon, meaning he's going to try to, he's going to drop a bomb on Kiev or a NATO capital or something like that. I don't think he's going to target in that way. I think what he would do is he would authorize the use of what we call tactical nuclear weapons, which are still very devastating and could have huge impact on millions of not just you know, not just have an impact on the direct soldiers it's using on, but have direct impact on millions of civilians, not just in Ukraine, but even Europe, because it could have a fallout and so forth. So it would be still, make no mistake, even though tactical are considered smaller nukes, they could still have a lot of devastating effects. But I think it becomes likely, it becomes likelier he could use something like that. The idea behind it is it would be a way to basically force Ukraine to say, that's it, we want to end this, we're done. And it would allow him to be able to reach some sort of deal that would be acceptable and basic, namely to where he could occupy and now control the eastern provinces of Ukraine. Ukraine would be willing to not try to retake them. Might be some sort of nuanced thing where they're not going to recognize Russia's right to it, but they're not going to try to retake it. It could be something along those lines. That would be the most likely likely scenario where I could see a nuclear weapon be used would be along those lines to basically force an ending, basically just try to scare the, not just Ukraine, but also Ukraine's supporters in the West, the NATO allies who have been arming and equipping Ukraine. That I think that would be the idea behind him using it. So I think it is a legitimate possibility. Again, I want to emphasize, I think this is low, this is a low probability event. It is rising. It is higher now than it was even a week ago. It's higher now than it was a year ago, but it's still a low probability of that. The most likely course, and as I wrote in the World Politics Review piece that you just mentioned today, is just that this points to an unwillingness to end the war, right? And I've been saying this for a while, that Russia can't really win the war, but they don't have to lose it. And in many ways, that is enough. If they can just continue to hold on and hold on, they could possibly create the conditions of what we call a frozen conflict, where basically they effectively have control of the eastern provinces of Ukraine, even though there's no truce, there's no sub, there's no formal peace treaty or anything, but just the two sides kind of have forces stationed, there's intermediate fighting. You could almost think about like a, a little bit more of what you could call a kinetic situation of like what's on the Korean Peninsula, right? Where there's no formal peace treaty, the two sides there, there's the DMZ, and you could envision some sort of situation like that. So I think that is kind of where things are going, but there's still this possibility that it could go more extreme. And in that case, that would be the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. Really interesting, and a lot of a lot of questions come to mind. Of course, from from what I'm sensing is that where where things are going right now, Professor Post, are not the ideal scenario for you. Would that be the ideal scenario where things are unfolding right now as the cards lay out on the table? And of course, the extreme worst case scenario would be the one that you said, the low probability one, the nu- the tactical nuclear weapon, which no one really wants. So in terms of an ideal scenario, let's say you're a foreign policy advisor right now for the United States president, for President Biden. You're seeing all of this emerging real time. How does the US, how does NATO, how does the whole community, worldwide community price in all of this situation? Literally, that wasn't, perhaps they knew about this uh, weeks prior or months prior, the intel, but now it's in real time, it's it's reality, like the, the world is moving with this in mind. 
So as an advisor, what are some of the steps, ideal steps the U.S. needs to take, the NATO community has to take, and, you know, how, how do we make sense of all this? This this question ties back into a point that you, or a question that you raised just a, a little bit ago, which is this idea of, can we think of this war between Ukraine and Russia as a bit of a proxy war between say the West or NATO and and Russia. And I don't think that we would think about it as necessarily a proxy in the sense that a proxy war means that the direct opponents are actually the two sides not engaged in direct fight. Right. So this would be that if you're engaged in a proxy war, what that means is Russia launched this invasion for the purpose of fighting NATO. Um, and the U.S. kind of is supporting Ukraine with the purpose of, of fighting Russia. There's elements of that in here, but this is this is a war of uh, imperialism, and that's been very clear from the beginning. That that is what Putin himself has said. You know, he didn't use the phrase imperialism. He has likened himself to Peter the Great, right? The the Russian czar who, hence Peter the Great, really helped to expand the Russian Empire. And so he has likened himself to that. And he has even said that the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. He's very big on wanting to recreate the Soviet Union. Um, there's a reason that the war started in, in February of 2022. He, this is a point that Mary Surratt, who is a Cold, Cold War historian, has raised Um but she has pointed out that if you look at the psychology of Putin, he's someone who's very big on anniversaries. And the the big anniversary for Putin was that December of 2021 marked 30 years since Ukraine gained its independence. And he's been very big on wanting to recreate the Soviet Union. He's very big on anniversaries. That's also the time that Russia was mobilizing and starting to build up its forces uh, for this operation. Now, I think part of the reason why it got delayed and it started in February, was indeed um, due to something that other people have been pointing out, but the fact that China and Russia kind of had this agreement that they signed on the eve of the Beijing games. And I think that Putin actually decided to delay the invasion as kind of a, you know, giving something to Xi, maybe in the anticipation that Xi would assist in some way with the with the invasion. But I think Xi may have made a request that, hey, if you're going to do something, wait until after the Beijing games. And I think that that's why, you know, it was what shortly after the games that then Russia actually made it. So I think they delayed. Otherwise, they would probably have tried in January, maybe even December, though. Yeah, obviously, you're dealing with winter at that time. So maybe you wait a little bit. But that's I mean, these are all things that point to that the motivation for this war was to conquer Ukraine, that he wants to recreate this empire. So it's not in that sense, he's it. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about NATO and concerns about NATO uh, expansion. And he, the main reason he invaded was to stop NATO expansion. But I've always maintained that that kind of has the causality the wrong way around. That it's like, um, it's not that NATO expansion drove Russia to invade. It's that countries sought NATO expansion because they were worried about Russia invading. This was, and this is most evident in countries that I've done research on, which was the Baltic states. And of course, the Baltic states are former Soviet republics that are in NATO. As soon as they gained their independence, the first thing they did was say, we need NATO membership. We want to be in NATO. And a lot of the NATO allies, notably the United States under the Clinton administration at the time, we're like, no, that's that's not going to work, right? That's that's a bridge too far, bringing these former Soviet republics into NATO. But it was the countries in Eastern Europe, it was the former Soviet republics, who they were the ones pushing for, they want to be part of NATO. It was not the US pushing NATO on them. And the question is, why did they want to be part of NATO? Because from the moment they gained their independence, they feared that Russia was going to do this, that they were going to try to reconquer them. The Baltic states were able to get in. Ukraine was not. And so that's what left Ukraine vulnerable. So they expansion is part of the story, but it's not a cause of it. It's a consequence of the concern that Russia would eventually try to reinvade and attack them. And so in that sense, that's, you know, I, I'm just sharing that to kind of say that when we're talking about this potentially as a proxy war 
or that NATO expansion plays its role and it's West against Russia, it's important to remember that no, Russia always has had this ambition of reconquering and, recon- and controlling these former republics, Ukraine being most notable about them, or most, most notable of them. Now, where does that lead then the advice that can be given? I mean, this is, there, there, there is a lot of debate about this. The U.S., if we just think about the debates in the United States, they have kind of gradually moved up the lever, or not the lever, the ladder uh, of support. You know, it started with the sanctions. It started with ammunition. Um, eventually, we were getting lower level. We said we wouldn't give like major platforms. But then we eventually gave tanks. Now we're talking about F-16s. Now we're talking about cluster bombs. And so it just each level, it keeps going up and up as Ukraine needs more and more support. So that's something that we've been doing. I think that there's a desire to get more. And to give it more quickly, because that will allow Ukraine to continue to put more and more pressure on Russia. But I think that the main thing that the U.S. and Western capitals need to be aware of is that, and I, and I do think that they're aware of this. I, you know, so I'm not saying that I'm going to be shedding big insight here to them, but that this is not going to end anytime soon. I think they are fully aware that this is a long-term conflict. This is a conflict that uh, could very well become a frozen conflict in the way that I've described. I think this is what's informing discussions about the potential of bringing Ukraine into NATO, which that's going to be very relevant here in a few weeks because NATO is going to be having their annual summit. And that's going to be a big part of the conversation is what do we do with Ukraine? And I've been on, I've made the argument that I think Ukraine should already be brought into NATO because we're effectively already treating them as a NATO ally by giving them the support that we're giving them. But there's a lot of folks, including President Biden himself, that are wary of bringing them directly in way. And I think a big reason why is because they're not envisioning this conflict ending anytime soon. And so they don't want to do anything that could potentially escalate it further. And so that is, that's, I think, the main thing that, you know, not just that policymakers need to be aware of, but the general public and your listeners. I think you need to be aware of is that this conflict is not going to be ending anytime soon. And so it just goes back to this point I raised about how the events over the weekend are just prolonging the war. There's lots of reasons to think this war is not ending anytime soon. Wow. Professor Post, it it, draws, it, it reminds me too, you know, this sunken cost fallacy or sunken cost bias that happens, for example, when I'm playing poker and I double down on my bet. And I need to continue on my bet. So I'm thinking on the perspective of the United States giving so much funding and so much support to Ukraine. I don't see them backing down and saying, you know, Russia, let's telling Russia, you know what, you can have Ukraine. I don't see that scenario playing out in all likelihood just because, of course, for for all other reasons, not just because of the sunk cost fallacy. But it's it's interesting how is this going to play out and. I'm becoming wary of your time, Professor Post. I just want to, I have a couple more questions if that's okay with you. Sure. So my question here now is regarding what you said on the United States perspective on, on, you know, assuming that this war is not going to end anytime soon. We're approaching a presidential election this year, next year. And it's being discussed you know, the Ukraine war is being discussed, but not as much as we think it would, or at least, you know, from the Republican candidate's perspective, it's not being as discussed. So how, you know, this big, big card on the table, that doesn't even, I just don't want to refer it as a political chip, because it's it's literally more than that. It's It has real world consequences more than just an election. So how does this all play out in our own, you know, presidential elections and what is the unfolding of that? So this is something that I think has been uh, an ongoing, it has been an evolving situation. And so if you were to ask me several months ago, what would happen if a Republican gained the presidency? And I do think that this is part of Putin's 
thinking, at least initially, was that it was likely that a Republican, if a Republican was elected president, they would take steps toward ramping or drawing down the support to And I think that that would have gone for any number of plausible candidates to uh, gain the presidency. I'm now in a position where I think the only candidate who would possibly do that would be Trump. Um, and even then, it's not 100% clear that Trump would do that either. Um, because Trump says certain things and then he does something else and it's it's kind of hard to predict him. But what I've noticed is, first of all, from the beginning, there were a lot of what you would consider your mainstream Republicans. Uh, McConnell, for example, had gone and visited Zelensky. Like, you know, there, there were already kind of people who were the kind of the, and the mainstream Republicans who were already on supporting, have long supported Ukraine. Um, but then there were, like, for example, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, who is, he's not part of the more extreme right MAGA Republicans, as we refer to them, but he is kind of beholden to, right? You know, but he had to reach a deal with them in order to gain the House Speakership. He was someone that at first was very much online with like, well, Ukraine funding might get put on the table, so forth. He has changed his tune dramatically. Um, and it was just what several weeks ago, I think he was giving an interview. I believe he was in Israel, and someone brought up, I think it was a Russian reporter, may have asked him, posed a question about it, and he just went on. He said, We are going to continue to support Ukraine. And what was interesting was the basis for his argument was the ICC indictment of Putin. And this is where I thought this this kind of changed my thinking a little bit on it, was that the power of that ICC, so the, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, of course, they issued several months ago an indictment of Putin for war crimes. The primary thing they indicted him on was the stealing of children from Ukraine to Russia. And that was explicitly the thing that McCarthy brought up. He said, you know, you're stealing children. So it was like, the gloves are off. And to me, I was like, wow, that really pointed to the power of that, that it was like, that's something that he could point to and say, look, this isn't about upholding the liberal international order or the UN charter or any of these abstract things that maybe his voters don't really care. It's about the fact that Russia is stealing children. And he could point to that and say, that's why we're going to continue to support Ukraine. And so that really changed my thinking to where I'm not, I'm actually not sure that it, it would matter who's elected. You have like one of the other candidates, Nikki Haley, of course, who was also the U.S. ambassador to UN. She has come out very vocal about the need to support Ukraine and about how that sends a message to China. That sends a message to Iran. So I think this is part of the reason why it's not being brought up as a political football. It's because I think there's actually become a consensus around the fact that, no, we do need to support Ukraine. There's differences for why there's that consensus. I think everybody has different motivations but I think that's part of the reason why it is not as big of an issue now politically as it was. And that's why I think, again, Trump being the wild card, he's always a wild card. He's been a wild card for a long time. But even then, I'm not convinced that if Trump were to become president, he would actually fully cut off Ukraine. Wow. And one would think that, you know, with Trump's speeches, he would say the, the war would end day one. Of my presidency, yeah. and it doesn't seem like what you're saying now. It just sheds a light on the more complex situations around them, and also the leadership in the U.S. not supporting the end of the war in itself. So that just changes a lot of a lot of things. Professor Post, I there's in the presidential elections. I think we could have another conversation, another episode in itself. So perhaps I'm gonna receive some heat by my listeners not asking more about that, but hopefully we get another chance to speak on that specific issue as well. And as we begin to to unpack the conversation, I would like to bring back our attention into the war, what just happened last week with the Wagner Group and Prigozhin. Hopefully I said it right again. Yes. And so, first of all, what happens right now, Prigozhin is the leader in the Wagner Group. So what happens now if let's say, let's go back into what you said, he's in a hotel with no windows. What happens if he gets killed? If he gets assassinated? Well, I think I, I again, it's so hard to 
know exactly what's going to happen. Putin has this track record of doing these kind of things. Um, my own view is that that's not going to happen. That's my own view. I mean, again, it, it could happen. There's so much in play. The main reason why I don't think it would it would happen is because if Putin did that, that would really undermine Putin's credibility with his call to the existing members of the Wagner Group to sign on to continue fighting, right? Because he's he he made this huge public speech. We refer to this in mind discipline as audience calls, right? He's incurred like these huge audience calls of saying, you know what, we're forgiving, um, there's no criminal charges, uh, you can go home, but I really hope that you sign on and fight for us. If if it comes out that Prigozhin's killed, a lot of people said, no, nope, read that, I'm going to go home. I'm not going to get it. In fact, I want to go to Belarus and get out. I'm getting out of here. And so I don't think Putin can afford to do that. So I do think that Prigozhin is going to be kept alive. I don't think he's going to... Because I don't think he can afford to do that. That doesn't mean Prigozhin has to be involved. He's essentially in exile in Belarus. But I don't think Putin can afford to actually eliminate him because I do think it would it would undermine his ability to easily recruit the members of the Wagner Group and other organizations. Because you know, keep in mind that Wagner is not the only one of these kind of private mercenary, quasi-mercenary paramilitary organizations there, though it's it's the most prominent one, it would severely undermine his ability to easily recruit them. Um, that doesn't mean he can't. That doesn't mean he couldn't resort to coercion. But if you can do it easily, why not do it easily? And given that they're having these resource constraints, I think it's in Putin's interest to not make that process complicated. Mm. Interesting. We'll see. We'll see how that falls and unfolds. Professor Post, my question for you as we begin to wrap up is what what is what are you looking into right now? What is on your radar in terms of what happened since last week? I know uh, you recently published your article in World Review Politics, which I'm going to put in the link below on the episode's info. What are you looking into right now? And what are some of the questions that have emerged from all of this chaos that you're trying to find an answer to? So obviously, the, the first thing that I'm trying to get a sense for, and I've been trying to get a sense for from the beginning, is kind of what does this mean for the broader conflict? And and indeed, that's that that was even the framing that I took when I first was evaluating this. I mentioned you. Know, we talked about my Twitter thread at the beginning of of the the podcast here, and you know I do these threads on all sorts of different. Topics related to international politics. I try to bring in international relations scholarship to help illustrate and help people to understand what's unfolding. And when I started that thread, I, you know, I started off with like, I don't know what is going on, but I could point to why it's happening. And, and the reason why it's happening, I mean, obviously at the beginning of this podcast, we went into detail, we went into the micro detail of like why that's happening. But at a macro level, the reason why this was happening was the war effort was not going as right. It was these arguments and disputes. Um, there in you know, the Battle of Bakhmut was this you know World War One type fighting of massive resources being dedicated for minimal gain. That was kind of at the macro level about why this. Happened. You know, and again, you can you regardless of trying to still parse out the, the details. So what that means is, you know, has that changed, right? Has that changed in terms of, is Russia going to be able to take steps in light of this to improve their world performance, right? And that's kind of a key thing that we want to be paying attention to. I've already shared about how I think this is going to prolong it. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's going to prolong it is I think this, this points to the fact that the argument wasn't over fighting. It was over how to fight. And I think that you're seeing this process of Russia trying to adapt, but it was trying to adapt in a way that ticked off certain key stakeholders, in this case, scare the Wagner group. But I think that that's what we want to be paying attention to is how does this point to adaptation on the part of Russia and how it's carrying out or that would position to continue prosecuting. In light of the fact of, as I mentioned before, Russia can't actually win in terms of achieving victory, but they can win in terms of not losing. 
they can win in terms of they're going to can't be forced. And that's what they're going to do. And so paying attention to kind of the adjustments that Russia makes and is in the process of making, that's what to be paying attention to. Professor, well, I want to thank you for, you know, keeping us informed, keeping me informed in the Twitter threads and also with the articles that you write and with your expertise, sharing your expertise. I truly appreciate your time here. I know this is not a one hour worth of conversation. It can be hours long. I have like at least five pages long of questions and all of my notes here. And we've also opened a new uh, can of worms with the presidential election. So hopefully I can have you on board again and we can discuss that in length, Professor. So I appreciate you joining. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you.